Grab a seat. Everybody doing okay this morning? Good. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Hebrews for me. Uh, but we have a few introductions to make at the beginning. Um, first off, kids, welcome. Um, you guys are here and with us today. This is our family worship day. Uh, if, if there's ever a fifth Sunday in the month, uh, the kids just get to hang out with us in here for two reasons. Uh, one, to give our volunteers a break. Uh, it is hard work doing that week in and week out, and Chloe and uh, her team does an incredible job doing that. Um, but then two, I mean, we, we value this, right? Like we, we don't want to um, create this facade that kids' discipleship, kids' development is for the church. Um, ultimately, it's for the parents, it's for the families to disciple their own kids. And so uh, we want to bring them in here regularly so they can hear and experience what the gathering looks like of God's people. So uh, if you hear kids, man, embrace it, enjoy it. Uh, if you're married, man, let this spur you on to go have some because uh, they are such a blessing. Uh, and I mean that literally, they're such a blessing from the Lord. And so do it. Um, the other thing that I want to bring up, um, Dylan, everybody say, hey, Dylan, Dylan, stand up. So starting tomorrow, Dylan is rolling on with us part-time staff, uh, which is huge for a couple different reasons. Uh, first, you guys can leave me alone. If you have questions, go to Dylan. Quit texting me, quit bothering me, Dylan at thebranchsalonica.com. Ask him. Um, but no, seriously, the, the, there's two factors that are happening. It's just super incredible what the Lord is doing through you guys. So, so simultaneously this month, and I don't know if you guys realize how like the, the branch was financed and all that, but uh, finance sounds business terms. We, we weren't like taking loans. Um, but we've had churches and partners come on to help support us um, for the entirety of the church until this month. Um, so now that we are six years in, we are officially on our own financially. So we have no outside support coming in to help the work that's happening here, which is huge. I mean, this is a massive thing for the church to get to this point. A lot of church plants never arrive here. So, so thank you, I mean, for all that have given and sacrificially given to the church over the years. Thank you, because I mean, this is a massive day for us that not only are we financially self-sustaining, but also we're to the point where we can bring on a part-time staff, which is just incredible. So thank you for your generosity and serving the church through that way. And uh, we're just excited to see what the Lord's gonna do. Um, with, with that being said, Hebrews 7, and, and I wanna start with a point of confession. Um, not, not bad confession, but I'm having this self-revelation uh, because I'm getting to the season in my life where, where this, this massive shift is taking place. And, and let me set the scene for a little bit. Uh, growing up, my, my family wasn't the wealthiest family. We weren't poor, but we just weren't that wealthy. Uh, and so we were always taught to be extremely frugal, right? It's like we were the family that was at the corner of Dairy Queen with one large blizzard and four spoons. And I'm going, mom, I'm 15. Like, can I not have my own blizzard? But that was just the way my mom would not buy anything unless it was on sale. Uh, it's still just habitual for us that we just walk through the clearance aisles. Now my mom only buys what's on sale, but buys a lot of what's on sale uh, as they have grown in, in their uh, financial independence. But uh, that being said, this just ingrained in me to be cheap, to be frugal, to be stingy. But here's what I'm starting to learn as I'm getting a little older. That requires a lot of work. 
So the way that my mind works, I'm gonna go for the cheapest option every single time, but I'm gonna to have to constantly be working on this cheapest option every single, so, so here's two quick examples. Um, when the branch started, right, we had borrowed sound system. So it was a sound system that was borrowed, someone let us use it because we had no money to buy our own. Well, we finally had the money to buy our own, instead of buying new, we went and bought used because that was a great idea. And if you were around for that season, it was a hit or miss about every other week would the sound system work or would it not. And then fast forward, Dylan starts getting more involved. So we go to purchase new speakers and they're like, hey, would you like the extended warranty on these? And I'm going, no, whoever buys the extended warranty on anything? And Dylan in his all financial wisdom goes, yes. We set up and tear down every single week. Let's get an extended warranty on this. And, and we did, and so now we have decent speakers. And so, so my shift is happening as I'm going, okay, maybe, maybe we shouldn't just get placeholders that we're gonna have to continually repair over and over and over again. Maybe we should just actually save up a little bit more money, a little bit more energy, a little bit more effort and do it right the first time. And what we're gonna see this morning through the text, this argument that the preacher is gonna be making is the Old Testament was a good placeholder. The law that we see throughout the Old Testament was, was good and right, but it was never meant to be the eternal thing. It was never meant to be the thing that lasts forever. It was just simple, that borrowed equipment, that placeholder that took place until the better thing came. So with that in mind, let's look at Hebrews 7, 11 through 22, so that we could see and start to understand, uh, again, the theme of Hebrews, that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is better and this morning we're gonna see that Jesus is the greater law. He is the better atonement. So Hebrews 7, we're gonna pick it up in verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek, rather the one named after the order of Aaron? Verse 12, for when there was a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For those of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with the tribe of Moses said nothing about the priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who's become a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but on the power of an indestructible life. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set apart because of its weakness and its uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it is with not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were such made without an oath. But this one who was made with a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So let's pray this morning as we dive into this word. Father, thank you that we have a better hope in you. Thank you that, that we see the purpose of the placeholder, we understand the purpose of the law, but you're a better hope, that you are more perfect, that you have guaranteed the covenant with us, your people, forever. So God, would you open our minds, would you open our hearts this morning to see your word truly. It's in your name we pray, amen. 
So, so last week we started into Hebrews 7, and I kind of teased it out as a three-week mini-series on Melchizedek, trying to understand why is Jesus better. So last week we had this story, this illustration, uh, where Abraham comes face-to-face with Melchizedek for the first time, and he had just came back from rescuing Lot uh, and all of Lot's possessions, his animals, all of his property back from these evil kings. And so him and 318 of his boys went out, rescued Lot, brought him back, and so Abraham's on cloud nine, right? I mean, he just did what no other king could do and walks into the presence of Melchizedek and doesn't boast about his accomplishments, doesn't sit back and take all the credit for what he's just done. Instead, he recognizes the superiority of Melchizedek and freely gives 10% away, freely gives 10% of the spoils of war to Melchizedek because he understood who he was. He saw the superiority of Melchizedek right in front of him. And so last week, based on seven, one through 10, we just simply asked the question, do we see Christ as superior? I mean, if we put ourselves in Abraham's shoes and we put Christ in Melchizedek's shoes because he is after the order of him, do we see uh, Christ as more superior? When we come face to face with him, are we still bragging about our accomplishments? Are we still boasting about all that we've done? Or do we recognize the greatness of who Christ is and freely give our life away, freely give our resources, freely give our time away because we see the true superiority of who he is? And this week, we're moving from Melchizedek to the law. So chronologically, we're going straight through the Bible. Melchizedek was before the law was created through Moses. And so now this preacher is going to be using this argument, the same Christ is better argument, not of Melchizedek, but Christ is better than the law. So we see this big idea come into culmination at verse 18. So look with me at verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So this right here is the main argumentation that we're going to start to tease out this morning. And there's, there's two different things we need to see. Now, first, we need to see this word perfect. And look at the beginning of verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. Perfect. So I know when we think about perfection, we think about me, but what we really need to understand, are you all tracking with me? Okay, that was a joke, not perfect. I know I seem that way, but uh, what we think about perfection, we think of more of like a completeness idea, but the reality of what this means is to put someone in a position in which he can come and stand before God. So if we were to read verse 19 uh, with the true meaning of this, for the law made nothing perfect, giving no access to God. So, so the law was never actually intended to give us full access to God, to give us perfection so we could stand right before him. And we even see this at the end of verse 19, to draw near to God. So true perfection does not mean that we have something to boast and true perfection means that we have access to the God most high. So we have to deal with this idea of perfection but we also have to deal with this idea of a better hope. So in the old covenant, their hope was the law which we'll get into in a minute. But the argument here is yes, Christ was more superior than Melchizedek and now we have more hope in Christ than we ever did in the law because the law could never actually give us perfection. Now, we have to kind of work our way back into why is this an issue? 
Like, like why is the preacher even preaching this? Why did he include this in the sermon? Why was this argumentation that he wanted to use? Now again, I'm gonna make just a passive jab that I think this was Paul writing this just because of the way that he writes and the way that he builds this argument, but that does not matter. Here's why this is important. Here's why he's including this back in, because we have to remember the audience, right? These are Jewish Christians. And if you're like me and we're like them, when things start to get really bad, what gets really hard, we have a tendency just to fall back into what we knew, right? So when, when things get challenging, when things get pressing, most of us are gonna go, man, I'm just gonna go back to how things were. Like things were easy over here, so I'm just gonna fall back into this. I understand I had a framework for, I didn't have to work as hard, so I'm gonna quit trying, I'm just gonna go back over here. And so what we see here is this glimpse that maybe these Jewish Christians living in Rome who are facing persecution are going, man, I didn't have to deal with any of this when I was just a Jew. I didn't have to deal with any of this when I just put my hope in the law. So I'm just gonna fall back here. This is normative for me, I'm gonna move back this way. And we see this preacher pleading with them, going, no, 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 Christ is the better hope. Don't go back to what you know. Don't go back to what you're comfortable with. Push back into Christ. And he does this in, in two main ways. 11 through 14, verses 11 through 14, he's gonna show us the insufficiency of the Aaronic priesthood. And then 15 through 19, he's gonna show us the sufficiency of the Melchizedek priesthood. So with those two arguments in place, this is supposed to be a time of encouragement, a time of pushing, going, hey, hold fast to Christ. He truly is the better hope. With those in mind, let's look back at verse 11, and we'll see this argumentation built out. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be to have another priest arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than the one named after Aaron. So here we begin. This is this argumentation that we see in verse 11, this perfection. So if access to God, if true access to God could have been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, through the law, then, then why would we need a priest after the order of Melchizedek? Why would we need anything else? Why don't we just let the law keep working and keep working and keep working, the priests keep doing their job. Why did there need to be any kind of mix-up? Well, it's because the law was just a simple placeholder. The law was never meant to do this forever. And so we have to understand a little bit about this argumentation and, and just bear with me for a second because we're, we're not necessarily Jewish Christians trying to fight with the law, but we need to see why this matters. And so Paul continues this argument in Romans 7, 7 through 8. What, thou, what shall we say? That the law is sin. So Paul is pushing this argumentation so much so. Christ is the better hope. The law was just a placeholder. Put your hope in Christ. That he had to ask this question, is, is the law sin? Like, was the law wrong? Did the Levites, did the 12 tribes of Israel, did they, did they get it wrong? Did they misunderstand? And here's what he said, is the law sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would never have not, I would have not known my sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So to rightly see that Christ is the better hope, we have to understand what the law does. And for them in those days, now that we have this law written on our hearts, 
But this was the establishment of what Christ wanted for us, what Christ required of us, what holiness looked like. And we see Jesus, even when he comes in the Sermon on the Mount, he takes the Ten Commandments and takes them up a notch. I mean, because I'm just being honest right now. I've never murdered anyone. And I would ask you if you've murdered, but that might get weird. Right? I, I just, I've thought about it plenty of times, and having three daughters, I'm sure murder is going to be in my future. Right? But I haven't yet. But Jesus would say, but even if you have anger in your heart, you've committed murder. I've never cheated on my wife. But Jesus would say, even if you lust over another woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. Now, how do we know? How do we have a framework for what sin is? What's the law? The law shows us what we can and cannot do. The law shows us what is acceptable before Christ. So Paul is saying, look, the law is not sin because the law shows us what holiness is. And more importantly, it shows us that we cannot attain it. I don't know if anyone else was legalistic like me as a kid, but, but did anyone else try their best to not sin for a week, or is that just me? Am I doing it? Okay. I was like, this, this is going to be it. I'm seven. I've got this. No sin for me this week. Now, that's cute and funny, and, but how, how, what kind of theology was that? I mean, what is going on in my heart that I think that I can attain righteousness based on my good works? But the reality is, we don't say it that way, but we still wrestle with that. Paul, again, Galatians 3, 23 through 26, we put it this way. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So we see the law was a guardian. The law was tangible. The law made sense. Atonement made sense. I sin. I'm going to purchase this lamb. I'm going to take these turtle doves. I'm going to go to the Holy of Holies. I'm going to give this over to Levitical priest. I'm going to watch him make a sacrifice for my sin. I can see it. It's attainable. I can touch it. I'm good. God, you saw that. I saw that. My sins are forgiven. Me and you are good. But Paul is saying, no, no, the, the law was good. It was our guardian. It was our placeholder but Christ is our better hope. It's no longer our atonement, the comfort of our sins is no longer through the bloodshed of animals on a yearly basis, but it's through faith in the bloodshed of Christ. But they're starting to wane back to the law. They're starting to put their hope back in the law. And their framework for this is, is somewhat correct if you understand the lineage of the Old Testament. So, so look at verse 12 because the, the, the author here, the preacher, throws out a really good argument. For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever see, served at the altar. 
For it is evident that our Lord has ascended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about the priests. So, so way back last August, I'd encourage you to go listen to it. Dylan went through and really preached through the Levitical priesthood and what it looks like, and, and how it was based on the, the godfather of the priesthood was Aaron, was Moses' brother Aaron, out of the tribe of Levi. So the Levites then were the priests. You could not be a priest unless you were from the tribe of Levi. Just real quick, Deuteronomy 18, 1 through 2 says, the Levitical priest of all of the tribe of Levi shall have no portion of inheritance with Israel. They shall eat of the Lord's food as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. There the Lord is their inheritance as he promised to them. So the Levites, the priests, they had no land. They had no inheritance. They were set apart to serve in this priestly role. But we see here that Christ didn't come from the Levitical priesthood. He came from the tribe of Judah. And so the the preacher here, the author here is going, I know this sounds strange because Jesus is not from the priest of Levi. He's not from this tribe. How can he be a priest for us? But then he continues the argument. Look with me at verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Now, last week we talked about Melchizedek, right? Not in the tribes, not part of Israel. He was outside of it. So we have this framework then after the order of Melchizedek. This is how Christ can accomplish this. Verse 16, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, but on the power of an indestructible life. For as witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So very quickly we start to see these two ideas teased apart, that Christ is the better priest, Christ is the better hope after the form of Melchizedek. And we see this phrase here, look again with me at verse 16 the power of an indestructible life. So last week we saw that Melchizedek had no beginning, no end, no genealogy. He just kind of showed up and there he was. And this is what starts to set apart Christ from the law, Christ from the other priests, is because it wasn't this external thing that made Christ a better hope. It was the internal stuff that made Christ a better hope. And here's what I mean by that. The Levitical priesthood, all the priests of the law, of the old covenant, it was all based on external things for them. So here's the candidate list for a Levitical priesthood. First, you had to be legitimate. So you had to be the product of a legitimate marriage. Second, you had to be a true Levite. So you had to be from the tribe of Levi. Third, you had to have no physical defects. 142 blemishes were listed out that could disqualify you from being a Levitical priest. 142 blemishes. Go check out Leviticus 21 later. It mentions some of them there, but very external for them. And the detail that goes into Leviticus and even into Deuteronomy about how they had to be clothed, how they had to be bathed, how they had to be dressed, how they had to have the oil in the right place, the blood in the right place. Everything was extremely uh, uh, regimented and external. They had to look, act, dress, talk a certain way based on the commandment that God had given them. But the new priest, after the order of Melchizedek, was internal. Because the old priest, they still had sin. 
They had to atone for their own sin before they could atone for the sins of the people of God. But this indestructible life is only found in Christ. And and we don't mean that Christ never died. No, brothers and sisters, he died dead. It wasn't some magic trick. He didn't slow his heart rate down while they pushed him into the tomb. He didn't just disappear for a while but still be alive. No, he died. But this indestructible life means that he couldn't stay dead. That the power of this world had nothing on him. And he is indestructible. He is the better hope. Look at me at verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. The law gave no permanent access to God. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now I know in preaching this is a no-no, but I just want to jump to Hebrews 10 just real quick. Just draw one distinction because this is going to be something that I think Daniel is going to be teaching in a few weeks. Hebrews 10.10 says this way. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. So this perfection, this access that we have to God is is final. It is done. It is finished. So when Christ is on the cross paying the atonement for our sins, when he screams out, it is finished, he means it forever and ever. If we place our faith in Jesus Christ alone, the law has now ceased because we have perfection in Christ Jesus. We have all access forever and ever through Christ's atoning work on the cross and resurrection. It is finished. So for us, let's just get real personal real quick, and I'm, and I'm landing the plane. I wanted to be short today uh, for the kids in the service, but but let's, let's start to land the plane because here's what we're not tempted with. Well, let me, that's, let me take a step back. I don't want to assume anything. Is anyone tempted in here about killing lambs once a year to pay the atonement for your sin? Anyone? Like that's where you naturally want to go back to? Okay. So the temptation for us is not to go back into the sacrificial system of the law, but the temptation for us is to find a better hope in our behavior. The temptation for us is to walk this fine line of legalism that we truly believe, just like my seven-year-old wicked heart, that I can be perfect that I can do what it is required of me to earn favor, to earn righteousness in front of God. We like the law. We like the checklist. We like the boxes. God, tell me what I need to do so that you will be pleased with me and let me do it. Let me earn it. Let me work for it. If you're anything like me, I will starve to death before I ask for help. I just, I don't ask for help well. And so for us, getting before the Father and saying, perfection, access to you can only be found through faith, through me admitting, I can't do this, Father, I need you. Your finished work on the cross is is what I need to have access to God, to have perfection. We struggle with that. 
that, that we want to work it off. We want to have enough good deeds. We want people to look at us, to see us, consider us as good, right people. And all the while, we're ignoring the finished work of Christ on the cross. So if this preacher was writing this sermon to us today, it would not be based on the sacrificial part of the law, but it would be based on the law. It would be based on church. You guys are fooling yourself. Gabe, you are fooling yourself thinking that you can be good enough to earn your way to God. And here's, here's probably the number one way that this happens. Comparison, right? I am totally better than that person. God, look at me. I've never done that. I've never like, well, I won't even list sin, <laughs> just in case you have, right? I mean, we, 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 we constantly do that. One of my favorite preachers talks about the only way that you will not find someone that you're better than is in solitary confinement within prison. In that moment, you're the worst one. You're the worst person you know. But outside of that, we can constantly be comparing ourselves, drawing conclusions, well, I haven't done that, well, I do this, well, at least I serve. Man, I stacked up 10 chairs today. Check me out. That person just left to go get their Zaxby's for everyone else. We're constantly, we're doing anything we can to justify ourselves before God on our own power. And this was the temptation for the church in Rome. I'm gonna justify myself before God on my own power. So it's not the sacrificial system, but it is the law. Here's my question for us as we start to land the plane this morning. Do you truly believe in the biblical definition of perfection? That the only way that you can be perfect, the only way that you can have true access to God is through the finished work of Christ on the cross. Now again, don't give me lip service. Everyone in this room is gonna say yes and amen to that. But look at your life. Is your life marked by faith? Is your life marked by dependence on Christ alone? Is there humility when we awake in the morning, praising God for the new mercies and the new grace that he's given us? Is there a comparison going on in our lives that I'm better than this person, therefore I'm good? Is there this feeling that when we get in trouble for sin, when sin's consequences get us, it's like we're driving down 400 and the cop gets us. And when he walks to the door, we say, police officer, everyone was speeding. Why did you get me? Is that our approach to the way we handle Christ? But no, instead, we should be more aware of the law. We should be more aware of our sin. As we compare ourselves to the world, as Paul does, we should be more aware that we're the most sinful person we know. We should be so aware of our sin that it constantly pushes us to the goodness of Christ. That the true purpose of the law is not to show us that we can be good, it's to show us that Christ is the better hope. So that's, that's the question this morning. That's what the author is pushing us to. How do we define perfection? Is perfection attained through our good works or is perfection attained through Christ's finished work on the cross, our better hope? 
And, and let me implore you, there's freedom to be found there. When you start walking in this identity of grace, when you start walking in this identity of hope, when you can admit, man, I am the most sinful person I know, then Paul's words come true, that when I am weak, Christ makes me strong. That is the way we've been designed to live and to work. So can I just give one last plea and then I'll pray? Here, within family groups, within church, within family reunion, here's my request. Let's drop the facade. Let's quit pretending. I am fully aware of my sin. Right now, last night, writing this sermon, having to constantly pray for the sin that was in my mind to be dissipated so that I could finish the sermon. You fully know your sin. Can we not encourage each other in that? Can we not say, hey, brother, hey, sister, I I get it. I'm the most sinful person I know. Christ is the better hope. Can we not carry on or stop carrying on this world's stereotype that everyone's got to be perfect, they've got to look good, they've got to dress good, they've got to act right. Can we start walking in the freedom that Christ has already purchased for us? And here, more than anywhere else within the church, can we remind ourselves of a better hope? Man, you fell today, man, Christ is good. You struggled with that sin, let's, let's pray together because Christ is good. You're putting your hope in your work again, let's pray together because Christ is the better hope. I, I need that. You need that, we need, that is the definition of community, of family, of pushing each other towards the better hope only found in Christ. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that our salvation is not dependent upon our good works. That your love for us is not dependent on what we do and what we don't do. That we're not having to walk a tightrope on a daily basis, hoping that we don't trip up and disappoint you once again. That we don't have to do enough good deeds to stay on your good list. And we don't have to guess if that we've done more bad than good. Father, because here's your, what your word tells us, that we are sinners. That when you gave us the law, that this is all that we are. That we are constantly breaking, constantly rebelling, constantly letting you down. But because of the great love that you have for us, you pursued us. You made a way when there was no way. that you replaced the law, the old covenant with the new finished work, the final atonement, the perfection was finished on the cross. That when you died on that cross, you covered all my past sin, present sin, future sin, forever. What is required of me is no longer sacrificial systems, but faith in you alone. And so, Father, would we be marked as a church by that truth, by that freedom? That that we can't, that we cannot be perfect, that we cannot do enough good deeds to let us boast all the more in what you've accomplished for us on the cross.
And Father, let that drive us to worship. Let that drive us to praise that although we were sinners, you came and you died. We scarcely can take that truth in that you became the sacrifice. Father, let that truth lead us to worship. Let that truth lead us to vulnerability. Let that truth lead us to humbleness, to reliance on you and you alone. For it's your name that we pray. Amen.